If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Psalm 105? Psalm 105. Today we're going to do something just a little bit different uh, than what we would typically do. Uh, I'm actually going to give the introduction to today's sermon right here at the beginning of the service. Because our text today, if you want to simplify it, is really a call to worship. That's what Psalm 105 is. And uh, kids, you're going to hear the start of the sermon, and I'm mindful of your attention span because three of you live in my house and are going to be brutally honest with me when I get home about the length of this introduction. But today, as we gather together, we're going to take a little pause from our Acts series because our culture is collectively stopping today to be grateful. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of stuff happening in our culture today that we aren't able to, uh, to jump in with both feet. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of celebration that we can't join in on. But today, oh, we can join in today. Uh, we are a grateful people, and we realize that there is so much that we can give thanks for. In fact, I would argue that the people of God gathered around the city today ought to be giving the, the, the deepest, and, and our praise ought to be reaching the highest over all of our neighbors we of all people have reason to give thanks. And so we join with them and we thank, we thank the Lord for, for all of the things that they're celebrating in their homes right now. That we have roofs over our head and food on the table. That's our daily bread. The Lord has provided. We are thankful. And that we have peace in our nation. I don't know if you've been looking at the news, but praise God that there's peace in our nation right now. Not everybody has that. And, and that there's stability in our political system, it might not be the leader that you would have elected, but there's, there's not that deep-seated corruption that so many experience. Praise God for that. And we praise God that there is a, a collection of dear friends that love us and family that support us. Not all of us have all of those things, but all of us here today can look at those tangible gifts and say, the Lord has been good to us, so we thank him. And yet, there are some distinctions in our gratitude compared to the gratitude all around us. I'd say the first and most important distinction is that as we give thanks today, we're not, just, we're not just throwing it out to the sky, right? We're not just thanking the universe. There is direction with our gratitude, amen? We know where these gifts came from. And so we're thanking the giver of every good gift. We're thanking our great God today. And we're gonna do that loud and proud in this service. But the second distinction is something I wanna challenge you to think about this morning. The second distinction in our gratitude here is that even if everything that I just listed was stripped away, we didn't have a roof over our heads and we, and we didn't have plenty of food on the table and if we, we didn't have safety in our land and if we didn't have stability in our political system and if we didn't have friends and if we didn't have family, even still, the people of God would have every reason to rejoice. And that's different in our gratitude, isn't it? Because we look past these gifts, which we're thankful for, but we look past the gifts and we see the giver. We see our great God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. We see that and, and it stirs up a gratitude in us that, that everything else really pales in comparison. We have forgiveness of sins. That's good news. I don't know if you realize today how good that is. I Man, I'm feeling that. My sins are forgiven. I am very thankful for that. There is a father in heaven who loves me in spite of the fact that he knows me completely. He loves me in spite of myself. I'm very thankful for that. There is a savior in heaven, Jesus Christ, God's son, who is interceding on, on our behalf, who is praying for the people of God. I'm thankful for that. And his Holy Spirit, the spirit of God is, is now living in us, changing us from the inside out, making us look more like Jesus. 
pointing us to the truth and, and enlightening our eyes, crying out, Abba, Father, as we come today. I'm thankful for that. There's a place prepared for us in heaven. I'm thankful for that. An inheritance that, that none of our worldly circumstances can ever touch, and it's right there for us waiting. I am thankful for all of that. And so today we join our voices with the gratitude all around us, but our gratitude should run deeper and it should reach higher. And to that end, we have this text in front of us. So I'm gonna read verses one to six of Psalm 105 as we prepare to respond to the Lord today. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so we have every reason to rejoice this morning. That's what this psalm is doing. He's, he's calling us to respond. And he's going to give the reason for that response later in the service. And we're going to be working through that today. But I just want to say before we go further, it's a sad but common reality that a lot of the times we lose this song of gratitude. That sometimes, even as Christians, the, the facts of what God has done for us the, the facts of the gospel, they're all right here, but the reality of the gospel is not singing in here. And so we find ourselves able to nod along, but unable to sing these songs of praise. And so by God's grace, if that's you today, and maybe that is, my prayer is that he will stir up in you the joy of the Lord this Thanksgiving Sunday. And only he can do it. You can't do it, I can't do it, but he can do it. And my prayer today is that he will. My prayer for us as the people of God is that we would sing this morning and pray this morning and sit under God's word this morning and come to the table this morning with thanksgiving in our hearts. And we're not gonna manufacture a false sense of excitement in this place. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna learn from this psalm and we're going to root our response today in the reality of what God has done for us. Commentator Derek Kidner says, Psalm 105, he gives it this title. He says that this psalm could be called, Not One Thing Has Failed. That's what I want you to see this morning. That's what I hope you'll see in your classes this morning, even though you're going to learn something different than what we're learning. But even still, as whatever you're learning, we're going to see this. Not one thing has failed. Not one promise of God has failed. Never once has he taken his loving eye off of his people. Not once. And so we're going to remember that as we pray and as we sing and as we sit under the word, and as we come to the table. And so right now, I wanna invite you to stand, and we're gonna pray, and then we're gonna to respond to him with songs of thanksgiving. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we love you. God, we just wanna thank you today for who you are and what you've done. We thank you that you are our holy, holy, holy God. We thank you that you are just and righteous. We thank you that not a single wrong has ever been overlooked by you. We thank you that you are merciful and compassionate, that Lord, even though you've seen all of our wrongdoing, you sent your son that we could be forgiven and cleansed. Lord, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit today that we would see that truth. God, that we would even feel that truth. God, we confess that 
our feelings often lie to us. We feel all kinds of things today. Lord, some people come in today, they're feeling discouraged. Some are just feeling exhausted. Some are feeling happy. Some are feeling angry. Lord, and yet you invite us to bring all of that to you today. And so, Lord, we offer ourselves up to you. God, we offer up honestly where we are today. And we pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see you in all of your glory. We pray that you would enable us to sing the songs that you deserve, to pray the prayers full of faith that you deserve Lord, to humble ourselves at your word. We can't just muster this up. We need your help. And so collectively as your people, we ask, help us today that our gratitude here in this place would run deeper and reach higher than any of the gratitude surrounding us in this city. Oh Lord, help us to be exemplary in our gratitude this Thanksgiving. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to turn once again in your Bibles to Psalm 105. Maybe it's still open. Psalm 105, as I mentioned, we've already preached through the introduction to this sermon at the, off the top. Question for you, it's not a rhetorical question. Um, when you think about the letters of Paul in the New Testament, some of you who've, been, who've grown up in the church, you'll know the answer to this right away. Uh, what's unique about the structure of Paul's letters? There's two parts. What's the first part? Doctrine. That's right. In, in the first part, he's, it's indicative. He's teaching us this is what is true. And then what's unique about the second half? Practical. It's response. So in the second half, he's saying, therefore, walk worthy. Therefore, live appropriately in light of this reality. So Paul has structured it that way for a reason. Because as Christians, our worship and our living is not meant to be mindless. It's not meant to be something that we muster up. It's meant to be rooted in the reality of the goodness of God. Now, however, if you look at Psalm 105, the psalmist doesn't use the same approach. We, we read verses 1 to 6, and verses 1 to 6 are full of calls to response. He's like, sing, give thanks, sing praise to the Lord, tell of his wondrous works, and remember, and be grateful, and rejoice, and ah, and he comes in guns blazing, like, you should feel that. And as I read that this morning, I can, I can even sense in this room that, that a lot of us are coming in and just shell-shocked, like, I'm not feeling any of that just yet. I feel a bit frustrated. I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wake up. I, I'm watching my kids fidgeting in the front. Why is this taking so long? Get them to their classes. Like, all of that's happening in the room, right? But he begins us there in the response. And what he's going to do now, in, from verse 7 onwards, is now he's going, to re, he's going to root that response that he's calling for in this reality. So he's flipped the order um, but because we're so used to reading Paul's letters, we're not, we're not used to this system. So now, if maybe in the start of the service you were feeling like, ah, you know, I, I don't know if I've got that, I don't know if I've got that joy in me, I don't know if I have that gratitude, I'm, I'm struggling. Well, I, I'm praying that the Lord will use the rest of this psalm to bring your focus back to where it ought to be. Listen, within this room, there are some of us who have a very small gratitude today. That's... That's an unfortunate reality, but it is reality, isn't it? And many of us have been there. In fact, all of us, I would argue, have been there at one time or another. Our present circumstances cloud out the goodness of God. And so we have sleepless nights with the kids, and all we can feel is just frustration and grumbling, and, or we're having issues at work, and, or we're having issues in our marriage, or, or you've got a wayward child, or you've got a health condition, and all of these things are are overwhelming our thinking, and those are very real issues, aren't they? If you're living through one of, some of you are living through three of those at the same time. That's very real. 
those circumstances you're facing. And what they do is they can cloud out our vision of the cross, cloud out our understanding of the goodness of God. And if that's you, I want to just pull you in to say, God is still good. He is still worthy of your praise. These circumstances that you're facing today are not going to last forever. I promise you that. Even if they last for the rest of your earthly life, they won't have the final word. And sometimes, listen, there's lots of reasons why maybe maybe you're sitting here today and, and rather than feeling grateful towards God, you're actually just sitting there grumbling with discontentment, thinking about all the ways that God is letting you down, all the things that he's withholding from you. Maybe that's you. I just want to tell you, sometimes our gratitude is small because our memory is short. Sometimes that's what it is. We forget the way that he picked us up out of the pit and breathed life into us. We forget the way that he broke those chains of addiction that we thought would never break. We forget the way that he redeemed that marriage or, or worked in our lives or transformed our future. We forget all that stuff and we get mired in, in the challenges of today. And as I said, I think we've all been there from time to time. And if one of you, maybe many of you, are sitting in this room today, I'm praying by God's grace that he would just, he would help you to develop a, a longer memory Right? If we want to be a people who are grateful, then we need to increasingly become a people who remember. And so that's what this text is, is for. It's, it's a call to worshipful obedience, but he's not simply trying to stir it up in us by repeating the bridge a fourth time. That's, that's what we often do in our culture, but that's not what he does here. Instead, he's pointing our attention back to past deliverances past victories, reminding the people of God that over the course of their history, in spite of all of their terrible circumstances, not one thing has failed. Not one. So we're going to work through the psalm today, and we're going to pull out just four examples of of God's faithfulness. First, in verses 7 to 15, he reminds us that God's promises have not failed. Hear now God's word. He is the Lord our God. Remember, so he just finished telling us, respond, sing praise, be joyful. He's given us all that. And now he says, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets, no harm. So stop there. So here he's, he's drawing our attention to the promises of God. It, raise your hand if you were with us last year over Christmas, our Advent series, Promise Keepers, if you remember that. We worked our way through some of these, these beautiful, profound promises of God in the Old Testament. And we remembered that God keeps his promises. Well, here he's, he's zooming in on one promise in particular, God's promise to Abraham. Now, God made a threefold promise to Abraham, if you remember. He, he, God found Abra, it was at the time, his name was Abram. God gave him a new name, too. Another day we'll talk about that. God comes to Abram, and he sees this seemingly insignificant man. This man who really had nothing that would distinguish him from any other man around him. God sees this man, and mercifully, he condescends, he speaks to Abraham, and he gives him this threefold promise. He promises Abraham that he is going to give him descendants that are beyond counting. You know, more than the sand on the seashore. 
He tells him that he's going to give him the promised land, the land of Canaan, a land possessed by powerful nations, but he's going to give it to Abraham and his family. And then he promises that through Abraham's family, through his seed, all the world is going to be blessed. Promises that to this man. And at the time that God made that promise to Abram, it would have looked like the most ridiculous, impossible promise imaginable. Abram was old. Abram's wife was old. Sarah was barren. She could have no children. She couldn't have one child. God's promise is to give you so many children, you never even count them. He's like, my wife can't even have one child, and those days are behind us. He's just this, this little guy. Couldn't find a better word. Just this little guy, you know, this, this nobody with nothing. And God says to him, I'm going to give you all of these things. He looks at the, the land that God's promised him. It's full of these powerful nations. And he looks back at his barren wife and his companions and and, and he's got to be thinking, this isn't going to work. And on top of all of that, and perhaps even running deeper than all of that, Abraham's a sinner. And his families they're sinners. Even when God keeps his promise and gives them a child, that child's a sinner, and then the next child's a sinner. As you read through the book of Genesis, if we're being honest, if you're reading through the Genesis for the first time, you're wondering with each chapter, like, when is God just going to pivot, turn away from this mess of a family and say, all right, let's... Th- bad idea, and, and find someone who's worthy of such a promise. That's what you think as you're reading through the first time. And yet God never does, in spite of all of these seemingly insurmountable obstacles, in spite of the unworthiness of this man and his family, God gives him everything that he promised. Why? Because God's a promise keeper. He made a promise, and God keeps his promise. So he opens Sarah's womb. It was a human impossibility, but God, there's nothing impossible with God. He multiplies this family. He gives them this land. And then nearly 2,000 years later, one of the descendants of Abraham, a woman named Mary, gives birth to a child named Jesus. And through him, all of the nations of the world are blessed. And actually, as God keeps the promise, it is greater than anything Abraham could have possibly imagined when those words were spoken to him. Not one promise failed. Not one Not one promise ever will fail. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've confessed your sin and put your trust in Jesus, did you know that you have been adopted into this family? You're a child of the promise. Paul says in Galatians chapter three, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And so as we're reading through the Old Testament and we're reading about all these glorious promises, in, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he reminds them that all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus. And he tells the Galatians, and because we are in Christ, we are now children of the promise. Which means that as God was faithful to Abraham, as the psalmist is delighting here in Psalm 105, he will be faithful to us. He's made some incredible promises to us. Did you know that? I would encourage you, give the rest of your life to, to looking and delighting in these promises that God has made to us. I could, I could list hundreds, but today I want to focus on one in particular, just in light of, of the context of this psalm. I mentioned he focuses in on this psalm on that second promise, the promise of the land. That promise looked so ridiculous because they, Abraham's family were surrounded by powerful nations that were so much stronger than them. And in the same way, for many of us in this room, we look around us, maybe even at this Canadian culture, and we, we just feel like we are surrounded. Like the, the powers of darkness, the, the hostility to the gospel of Jesus Christ, at times it feels so oppressive, doesn't it? 
Some of you in your workplaces, I mean, you walk in and you just think, I, it's like I, I like having a hard time, I'm having a hard time breathing in this place. There's so much hostility and antagonism towards the gospel. And sometimes we feel like the church is in her final throes. Well, that's, Abraham's feeling the same thing, right? God tells him, I'm going to give you this land. He's looking at the giants around him. Nevertheless, Paul, Jesus promised to Peter, and thus to us, his church, he said, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Listen to this promise. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus promised long ago that he is going to build his church, and as dark as it might seem, as dark as it might feel, as oppressive as your workplace might be or your neighborhood, even still, even though you feel like you're a candle that's barely flickering, like you're smoldering in the dark, God will not fail to keep his promise. The church will prevail. The light will shine. The gospel will go forth. And so, church, just press in and lean in and believe him. Believe him in this. Charles Spurgeon is so helpful here. He says, the smallness of a church and the poverty of its members. And I, I think he's not just talking about their, their material poverty. I think he means like their spiritual. Maybe you just feel like, I got no strength. I'm just, I'm, I'm weak. I got nothing to bring to the table. The smallness of a church and the poverty of its members are not barriers to the divine blessing if, if it be sought earnestly by pleading the promise. My prayer for us this Thanksgiving is that we would become a people who, who root our confidence and our faith in the promises of God, that we would learn what it means to plead the promise. If, if that's you and you're going into that dark workplace, my prayer for you is that you would walk into that workplace and you would begin each morning just saying, God, you said, you said that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so I'm going in. I'm going in here as an expression of your church, as, as, as light shining in the darkness, God, and I'm just believing. I am believing that the gates of hell will not prevail and that you will move and that you will work. I, I pray that as we gather together in our prayer groups that we would be praying that prayer for this city, that God would move. There are people all around us that are perishing in their sin and that we would just plead and, and say, God, you said you would build your church and your promises have never once failed and they won't fail now. God, so would you do it? Would you do it again? Let's learn what it means to plead the promises. God's promise has not failed and the psalmist says, that's our first reason for rejoicing. His promise has never failed. It never will. Second, he shows God's providence has not failed. Now, I recognize that providence is not a word that we use as frequently in our Canadian culture as others. But it's an important Bible word, and so we don't want to lose it. So maybe just a quick definition. What do we mean when we say providence? John Piper explains, in reference to God, the noun providence has come to mean the act of purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. Meaning more simply even than that, when we talk about God's providence, we're talking about the reality, our deep conviction, that there is nothing that happens in this world that is outside of the hand of our God. That never once are we outside of his control. Not once has God failed in his purposeful sustaining and governing of the world even on those occasions when, when everything looks like chaos and it looks for all the world like nobody's in control, even still, as believers, we say, no, God, God was there governing, ordaining, structuring, he, providentially caring for his people. That's what we mean, and we see this in verses 16 to 22. Look there with me. 
He says, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house, ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Now this is a fascinating passage here in light of this this, uh, call to worship that Psalm 105 is. He's talking about the story of Joseph. And we don't have time to go over this whole story of Joseph, but I want to point you to some really significant details in this text. Look again at verse 16. Sometimes we rush by things that really, they deserve like a a whole day of meditation. He says, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, pause. Who is he? Not a rhetorical question. Who is he in this psalm? God, that's right. So the psalmist says, when God summoned famine, that God did that. And when he broke all supply of bread, He's saying, God, God did that. It's just remarkable. And now sometimes we, as Christians, we can want to soften things like this. And so you might say something like, well, God, let's not over, let's not overcomplicate. God allowed that to happen, right? It was happening and God permitted it. And then God kind of intervened and turned it all around and made it work. Uh, but that's not, that sounds nice, but that's not what the Bible says, is it? God summoned. God broke all supply. We've got to wrestle with that. And as we're wrestling with that, we've got to turn to verse 17, which is even more complex. You're going to be writing question marks in the margin of your Bible if you thought 16 was hard. In verse 17, look at what he says. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. He, that is God, sent Joseph ahead of this famine into Egypt. So God's working this plan out. How does Joseph get to Egypt? He was sold as a slave. I mean, again, if you're familiar at all with this story, you know it was the sin of Joseph's brothers, their wicked jealousy that led for him to being sold into slavery. And then it was the sin of Potiphar's wife falsely accusing Joseph, and now he gets thrown into prison. And the whole thing is just an absolute disaster. As you're reading the story, you think, poor Joseph is being misrepresented, mistreated. What an absolute disaster. The psalmist says God sent him there. How do you... How do you reconcile that? In some mysterious way, it was God who was working. Even as Joseph's brothers were sinning and Potiphar's wife is sinning, somehow God is mysteriously working in this seeming chaos. I want to say really carefully, God is not the author of evil. God has never sinned. So God didn't sin, and yet somehow, the Bible says, through the sins of these other people, God's plan was unfolding. If you know how to hold all that intention, then good for you. I would say as Christians, our job is not to tie this up in a neat little bow and say, Eureka, we've solved it. Our job is just to hold on to these things. God is doing this, and yet humans are responsible for this sin. And, and somehow, mysteriously, this is reminding me of God's control. And Joseph somehow held this tension, and he said to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So he's, he held this tension. We need to hold it too. But now I, I think there's a different question that we need to ask. 
Why on earth is that whole talk about providence in this psalm of thanksgiving? Because at first and maybe even second glance, that seems like it's out of place. Right? He's like, praise the Lord. Sing and, and, and rejoice and tell the whole world. Remember Joseph? God, God sent him and he was a slave and there was a famine and it was a disaster. And you're wondering, wait, hey, I, I was just getting worked up here and you're kind of you're kind of ruining the mood. But the psalmist says, no, you need to see this and you need to rejoice in this. Remember when it seemed like everything was going wrong? Remember how it wasn't because God was working? It's like You need to remember that, brothers and sisters. You need to rejoice in that, that when it looked like meaningless chaos, it wasn't because it never is. When it looks like meaningless chaos, it isn't. It never is. God providentially, mysteriously, miraculously is working all things for the good of his people. That's what he's delighting in in Psalm 105 and that should be ringing a bell right now. Does that remind you of anything else? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. It's this understanding of God and the world that enables him to write and we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And the psalmist is saying, that is reason to rejoice today. So I would just issue a challenge to you, a challenge to myself, this Thanksgiving day. We have these traditions, we were just with, with some family yesterday and we're all around the table and this isn't unique, I bet you've done it. We went around the table and we asked, what are you thankful for? And we are, I'm thankful for this food. I'm thankful for my family, I'm thankful for my health, I'm thankful, and, and I'm thankful for all of it, every bit of it. You know what no one said? I am thankful for that trial that nearly wrecked my marriage two years ago. I, mean, I am thankful when I lost my job four years ago and, and the way that God used that to shape my life. I am thankful for this latest diagnosis that has made me pray more than any, any other time in my life. None of us went there. And the psalmist reminds us, perhaps you should. Perhaps you should stop and you should look back. And perhaps it would bolster you for the trials ahead if you would look back and remember the way that God used those seemingly insurmountable obstacles from the past. The way that he used those to refine you and shape you and change you and make you more like Jesus. The way that he used those to prepare you to comfort others. To prepare you to share the comfort that you received. And here, let me just be really clear. There are things in your life, trials you've faced, and you can see right now what God did. And you're like, yes, I see his wisdom in that. Thank you. There are some trials that you still, you, you're so close to it, you still don't see it, do you? You're like, I'm not entirely sure what that was all about, but I trust that he was doing something. And then there are some that, I'll be honest, I don't think you're ever gonna understand until you're with him in glory. You're never gonna understand how that was possibly for your good until you're standing there with Jesus and he wipes the tears from your eyes and he says, look what we did. Look at what, I've, look what I accomplished through that. It was, it was for your good. And there are some that you're just, you're just not going to see it until you're with him in glory. But here's the, here's the truth that we can praise God for. Nevertheless, in spite of all of our chaotic, messy, ah, as the people of God, we know that he is providentially working every last drop of it for our good. The psalmist sees that and he says, oh, tell of his wondrous works. Rejoice. Remember Joseph, remember jo what a mess, rejoice. Our God is good, he's working and he's got a plan that is so much wiser than anything you could ever muster. 
One old Puritan wrote, let all God's people expect trials. Happy Thanksgiving. No. Let all God's people expect trials. They will surely come. And in due time, deliverance will as surely follow. And deliverance shall be followed by glory and honor. And as the people of God, by the grace of God, we've been enabled to believe that because we saw it at the cross. The cross gave way to the empty tomb. The mocking gave way to glory. Down, then up. That's the path of the Christian life. That's what Jesus said. That's what he will do. His providence has not failed and never will. Third, God's protection has not failed. So he uses the 10 plagues, and, and even if you didn't grow up in the church, you're probably familiar with this. He points back to the story of the 10 plagues and that delivery out of Egypt to make this point, and we find it in verses 23 to 36. This is a longer reading. Hear now God's word. It says, Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. That's another way of saying the land of Egypt. I wouldn't normally explain it, but on Thanksgiving Sunday, I say Ham, and I know you're not thinking what you ought to. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood, caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain, fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Stop there. Now here he's, he points us back to this episode of, of Israel in Egypt, and he's moving quickly. If you're tracking along through the history of, of Israel, he was talking about Joseph, and then, of course, God's people came to the land of Egypt. They grew, they became prosperous, and eventually the Pharaoh who liked them was, was long dead and Israel was looking really strong. And so the new Pharaoh says, we gotta, we've got to stop this. They're going to overrun us. And so he subjects the people to slavery. And it's awful. Mistreats them terribly, oppresses them terribly, and puts them to, to be a workforce. And they're trapped in this place. And if you were an Israelite in that time, you're looking at your circumstances thinking, what is God doing? Why did he bring us here in order to make us slaves in this land? And of course, they're looking at their enemies. They're looking at Pharaoh and the Egyptian army and they're thinking, we'll never get out. There's no hope for us. No reason why Pharaoh would ever let us out because we're free labor. This is, this is our lot in life. And yet, the psalmist reminds us that even when we are surrounded, absolutely surrounded by our enemies, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to fear evil because our God knows how to protect his people. And the enemies of the people of God will not have the final word. They never will. With a stunning display of his authority over creation, 
God commands the waters. And if you read through the psalm, you notice it's interesting. He doesn't go through the plagues in order. It's like he's just exploding with praise. It's like God sends, he sends the water, uh, the hail from heaven. God, God turns off the sun and makes it dark. The angel of the shadow of death killing the firstborn. He's, he's sending the, the locusts to eat up the things. He's sending frogs. He's sending even little bugs, little gnats. And the psalmist is overwhelmed by the fact that there was nothing that wasn't at God's disposal to set his people free. Charles Spurgeon here focuses on this, the, the gnats, and he writes, what armies the Lord can send forth when once his right arm is bared for war? What scorn he pours on proud nations when he fights them, not with angels, but with lice. Surely pride is moral madness. See, the Israelites were looking around, and maybe you've done this, looking around at their obstacles, looking around at their foes, their opponents, and thinking, we're outnumbered, we're overpowered, we're, we're, we're overmatched, we can't, we can't do this. And the psalmist just gives us this reminder that the Israelites were, were clearly mistaken. Right? The people of God have never once been outnumbered, they've never once been outmatched. And Pharaoh, in all of his pomp, and, and thinking that he was so powerful, he's brought to his knees with gnats, right? With little bugs, with frogs jumping around. You, all, with all your army, you can't keep the frogs out of your bed, Pharaoh. And this prideful man and his prideful nation, God is mercifully revealing himself to Pharaoh. He's mercifully humbling this man and giving him an opportunity to repent. And 10 times these humblings come and 10 times Pharaoh gets knocked to his knees and tragically 10 times he stands back up and shakes his fist again at God. And we're gonna say something about the comfort for the church because that's what the psalmist is after here. But if I get to say a very brief word, it's possible that there are some people in the room with hearts like Pharaoh. and You know, he has is, he is knocked you onto your knees again and again. He has shown you, you're, you're just a man. You're just a, a woman. You're, just, you're a creature. That you, that you live to be in relationship with me. But, but for your whole life, even every time he knocks you down, you just stand back up, you shake your fist at him and say, I don't need you. And I just want to warn you today, don't follow Pharaoh. We know how his story ends, but your story isn't over. Don't be a fool. If God in his mercy is knocking you to your knees, bow before the king and receive life. Receive life. Call out to Jesus. Did you know that Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sin of our rebellion? That, that Jesus' blood on the cross, it was sufficient to cover over the rebellion of Pharaoh had Pharaoh surrendered himself to the king. Now, Pharaoh didn't. But the blood on the cross that was shed is sufficient to cover over your rebellion. Rebellion for a lifetime. All the things that you think keep you so far from God that you could never come home. He, he, is, he is ready to run to you and bring you home. You've got to bow the knee and turn to the king. That's a word to Pharaoh. But again, the psalmist here, he's not writing for Pharaoh. That's just if there happens to be Pharaoh in the room. But he's writing for the people of God who feel like they're surrounded. He's writing here for the church. And he's reminding us that a mighty fortress is our God a bulwark never failing, that we can trust him because he protects his people. And there is an enemy that we face today, and, I'm not, and it's not Egypt, and it's not Canada, to be clear. There's an enemy that we face today, the accuser, the evil one, the devil, and he attacks us in a different way, doesn't he? He lies to us. He condemns us. Right? He whispers in your ear, God could never love you. God could never forgive you. There's no redemption from this. There's no coming back from this. And he attacks us, doesn't he? He sows doubts, 
seeds of doubt into our lives, tries to derail us, promises us glory, promises us happiness, contentment. He can't keep his promise, but that's the way he attacks us, and you felt it in your life. Every single person in this room has felt the attacks of the evil one. Let me ask you, has he ever succeeded in luring you away from the king? Has he ever knocked you down such that you could not stand back up? You're in Christ? Not once. Not once. You know why? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Can, you just, can I just remind you of that this morning? God knows how to protect his people, and he will keep you. He will hold you fast. And so maybe you're scared. Listen, it's miraculous that we woke up today worshiping Jesus. It's miraculous. I mean, the, the number of, of lies all around us, the, the amount of doubt all around us, the, the amount of temptations. I mean, we could have each woken up today and said, forget that. I want to be the God of my own world. I'm going to do whatever pleases me. I'm going to forget God. I'm going to do, do this my own way. I'm gonna, I've got all these people telling me that this is madness, and you know what? Perhaps they're all right. It is madness. It is foolishness. I want the praise of the world. Oh, any of us could have made that decision. And yet God miraculously caused us to roll out of bed and he gave us a heart that loves him. He gave us the miracle of faith. And what a miracle it is. He can't muster that up. It's a gift. And he shuts down the lies of the evil one. It's this understanding that enabled the Apostle Paul to declare, and this is, this is truth. Hear this today. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, no Pharaoh, no circumstances, no doubts, no devil, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, because God protects his people. He always has and he always will, and that is reason to praise. Has he ever failed you? Has he ever failed to bring you through? Through many dangers, Toils and snares. I have already come. And it's grace that brought me safe thus far. Not me. Not, not my strength. It's grace that brought this frail man standing in front of you today. It's grace that brought me safe thus far. And guess what? It's grace that's going to bring me home. He will do it. He has done it. He always does it. Protection has not failed. Fourth and finally, as we come to a close today, God's plan has not failed. There's a, there's a method to all of this, and there's an end to all of this. First, I wanna, I'm going to break this into two sections. First, look at verses 37 to 41, where he tells us, Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering, fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and he gave them bread from heaven in abundance, he opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. Let's pause there. So remember, they're in Egypt. Seems all but hopeless, completely surrounded. But God had a plan. And so God uh, causes Pharaoh to relent. And, and even as they go out, the Egyptians, not only do they release their free labor, but they send them out with gold and with silver and God leads them by day with a pillar of cloud. They're not sure where they're going, but he's leading them. And at night, he leads them by a pillar of fire. And then they get hungry, and he causes manna to fall from heaven. And they want meat, and he causes quail to fall from heaven. And they're thirsty, and he causes water to gush from the rock. And he provides for them every single step of the way, withholding nothing that they will need for the task. 
And Charles Spurgeon says here, and I know I've quoted Charles Spurgeon a couple of times. He's good. He says, when God calls his people to a long journey, he fits them for it in the pilgrimage of life. Our strength shall be equal to our day. Maybe you're here today, and you, you're just looking at the challenges you face, and one of, the massive, one of the reasons why you're struggling to praise today is you just don't know how you're going to stand up under it. You're just thinking, I, no, I know my limit, and my limit was about seven steps ago. Like, God has stretched me so far beyond my limit. And you're wondering, like, I don't have the resources emotionally, spiritually, financially. I don't, I don't have it to get through this. And if I could just remind you this morning, God will always give you exactly what you need when you need it. Always, without fail. He, he is never going to leave you lacking. He's not like that. He's generous. I, Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, this is like one of the most profound verses ever, if you really think about it. He makes an argument from the, the greater to the lesser. So it's kind of like, you know, if, if your dad gave you a Lamborghini, then he, won't he also pay for your coffee when you're short cash? He makes an argument like that. Hear what he says. He, that's God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Meaning in those times when you feel like, I just don't have the reason, I don't have enough, I don't, I don't think God's going to give me what I need. He's saying, would you just look at, the, look at the cross. If God did that, if God has given that, then he can get you through this rough quarter at work. He can get your marriage through this rough five years. Like he, can, he can get you through this weird season with your kids, this financial burden you're facing. Like he's, if he's given this, do you think that he's going to look at the challenge you're facing today and say, that, you know what, this is too expensive. Let's move on. Next. No. No. He sent the Israelites out with gold and silver and bread from heaven and quail and, and all of it, the whole lot of it, and the water burst forth from the rock. God is going to give you what you need, the grace for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. But that's not actually the point of this closing section. So I want to read the last half. I just wanted to make sure you saw that because maybe some of you needed to today. He goes on to explain in verse 42, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy his chosen ones, with singing. He gave them the lands of the nations. They took possessions of the fruit of the people's toil. Listen, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God delivered his people. He's done all of this so that they might obey him and live for his glory in the land that that he's placed them in. That's, that's the plan. We're talking about what, all these things that God is doing and we're talking about how his protection and his promises and his provision, all of these things, the plan, it has an end. There is an end goal for this plan and the end of this plan is that you would live to his glory and grace, that you would obey him and worship him and resemble him to the world, that you would be a walking, talking monument of mercy. That's why you exist. Praise grows out, flows out of gratitude. We worship and obey not so that we can receive salvation, but we worship and obey because we've already received it. That's what's so beautiful about our faith is that Jesus has done it. So he doesn't say, come and do it, and then I'll let you in. He says, I have done it. Now come to me and live, and then I'm gonna do it through you. I'm gonna give you my spirit. I'm gonna change you from the inside out. That's the, that's the mystery and the miracle of it. It's true in the Old Testament too. 
but we're seeing that in Psalm 105. If you come on Thursday nights, uh, on week one, Gary reminded us, before we looked at the Ten Commandments, Gary said, hey, what happened before this? God delivered his people out of Egypt. And God was specific about that. He says, I've, I rescued you before you kept these. I gave you grace and mercy before you kept these. I made you my people before you kept these. But now that I've made you my people, here's how to live. So that they might obey. So that they might keep his commandments. The Apostle Paul explains in Ephesians 1, for us here living in the new covenant, he says, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of there. We've obtained an inheritance. He doesn't say having worked really hard, having made really good decisions, having mustered up faith in ourselves. No, he says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why did he do this? Why did he put this affection on us? Why did he pick us up out of the mud and give us life and cause us to walk for him? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You and I were saved to live to the praise of his glory. Saved to sing. Saved to delight. Saved to rejoice. Saved to obey. Saved to love Saved so that with gratitude we could point the watching world to the glory and the grandeur and the grace of our great God. That's why we're here. That's the plan. That's the plan. It's helpful to look at the plan, right? We're all living in it. Sometimes you've got to scale back and say, what's this all about? Save to obey. That's the plan. God didn't save you so that you could continue to, to toy with sin. Well, you've heard that a hundred times here. It's true. God saved you so that you might live to his glory. He didn't save you so that you could, you know, sit on your couch and eat the third helping of, of uh, pumpkin pie and, and binge watch these things and waste your life away. No, he saved you so that you might go out into the nations and make disciples and, and baptize them and teach them to observe all that he's commanded and make the disciples in your home and tell the world about Jesus God didn't save you so that you could sit in this sanctuary and, and grumble and, and just think about all the ways that God's withheld from you and how much you deserve better. He saved you so that you might praise him and that you might look with wonder and awe at the cross where the God of the universe who is holy, holy, holy saw you who is grumbly, grumbly, grumbly and sent his son so that all of your sin could be laid on him and removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And it doesn't make any sense apart from the glorious grace of our God. He made you so that you would see that and so that you would sing that and so that that would change everything in your life. It's important that we understand that, brothers and sisters. As we go out into this world and as they're lifting up their songs of thanksgiving, let our song run deeper. Let it reach higher. Let it ring truer because we have every reason to rejoice. And so I'm going to conclude where the psalmist began because for him, he, all that was ringing out in his brain as he's singing, writing, he didn't write like this, the opening lines. But hey, now that we've got all of that ringing in our minds, hear now God's word. Verses one to six, this call to worship. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, church. Sing praises to him, people of God. Tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. 
seek his presence continually. Remember. Remember the wondrous works that he's done. His miracles, the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Charles Spurgeon, I'll conclude here. Give him one more word. Charles Spurgeon said, election is not a couch for ease, but an argument for sevenfold diligence. If God has set his choice upon us, let us aim to be choice men and women. Let's pray together. God, we love you. And yet we acknowledge that we don't love you as much as we ought to love you. We don't see as much as we want to see. We certainly don't understand anywhere near what we will understand one day when we're with you in glory. But God, I pray that today, miraculously, with the help of your spirit, that you would open our eyes to see you just a, bit, a little more clearly. That you would widen our hearts to absorb what is the height and depth and love of God for us. As we come to the Lord's Supper in just a moment, I pray that, Lord, we would, we would see in, in these elements, in the bread, in the cup, that you would miraculously, mysteriously help us to understand the depth of this love that you would send your Son to ransom and redeem people like us. God, I pray that you would put to death the lie that says that we deserve this. God, we don't. God, I pray that you would put to death the lie that says we need to try to earn this. We've disappointed you this month. God, that's just not the truth. We are loved and we are redeemed and we are saved because of Jesus. He has done it. God, I pray that we would see that today. I pray that we would live out of that today. Because, God, it's only as we see that that we're enabled to live the life you made us to live. Obedience must flow out of gratitude. Worship must flow out of gratitude. If it flows out of anything else, it becomes begrudging, trying to earn the love of God. Lord, And we've all been there from time to time, but God, that's not where we want to live. Not where we're, we were made to live. We've received it, God. Help us to rejoice and delight in it. And Lord, I do pray for those in this room. Lord, I, I'm thinking of two particular types of people today. Lord, there are, there are men and women in this room who don't know you. They don't love you, and they don't understand the love that you have extended to them in Christ. They don't see it, and there's no sermon I could preach that would make them see it. There's no, there's no lecture from their loved one who will make them see it. it. It has to be a miracle. And God, I'm praying that you would miraculously right now open their eyes, knock their socks off with your love through Christ, that they would see that there is forgiveness from sins if we repent and believe Everything changes. God, I pray that today would be the day that they see that. God, I just pray that you would be unrelenting in the way that you pursue them and draw them. Lord, but then I I also am mindful that there are others today who are just feeling discouraged, frustrated, discontent. Lord, and they're struggling to remember your goodness. Lord, they're struggling to believe your promises. Lord, maybe the the evil one is, is whispering in their ear and he's been really effective this week, this month. Lord, I just pray that today would be a day of release for them as they look again to the cross of Christ and see the, the truth that drowns out all of the lies of the accuser, that they see the forgiveness that is theirs already, Lord, the love that is theirs already, the adoption that is theirs already. God, I pray that they would see their uh, a hope that 
sees beyond these circumstances that are surrounding them, Lord, the, the work, the family life, all the, all the mess, God. You know it, Lord, and you see right over it. Lord, it won't have the final word. Help them to see that today, I pray. Lord, encourage them. So as we sing, Lord, and as we come to your, supper, or your Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray that you would just do a mighty work in this place. Let the praises of your people resound, not just in our singing, but in our living as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?